0: Kiwi late, it's going to be close here, Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run.
1: Piping Lane races up the man pick, takes the lead in the cup out wide is
2: guns in stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup but it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup, he's got the cup one, he's holding nothing like a Dane and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Olsop, they're going head and head, Rain Lover on the inside Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jessabelle, Champagne, Jessabelle fighting back, Jessabelle, Champagne. Finally the line, Jassimil wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. The devra has won it, American Trevian.
1: Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup.
2: Helion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the post, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. My fingers go to Zima, they hit the line locked together.
0: Dead he a dead end in the Melbourne Cup, Seymour and Light Fingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by 10 lengths.
1: Here's Brian Martin.
2: Hello, and welcome on this week's edition of the History of the Melbourne Cup. We look at the iconic trophy, the three handled cup, the Loving Cup, first presented 100 years ago to the winning owners, Sir Samuel. Horden and Mr. A. Murphy, whose three year old Colt artilleryman won the Melbourne Cup carrying seven stone six ridden by the great Bobby Lewis at ten to one, running a track record back there a hundred years ago and winning by six lengths. So what about the cup? Since then we have Presented the iconic trophy to the winning connection, so it 's a hundred years since we've had this type of cup, this magnificent trophy. But what happened between eighteen sixty one and nineteen eighteen so let's shed some light on the trophy, this magnificent trophy. I welcome VRC
1: historian Andrew Lemon. Good day, Andrew. Uh, always lovely to talk about Melbourne Cups and particularly the trophies, which have a life of their own as well as the horses.
2: They certainly do. And for the first time, we welcome Dale Monteith, former CEO of the Victoria Racing Club and an historian in his own right. Good day, Dale.
0: Good morning, Brian, and good morning, Andrew. I'm looking forward to this because uh, you're talking about something I love dearly, being a historian in my own right but a racing executive that started out in racing is a history of it that drew me to the, to the very fabric of this wonderful industry.
2: Yeah, you're right, Dale, and it's uh, it, it, the stories just get richer uh, as the years roll by and you go back and, you, and, you know, we, we have a lot of data, so to speak. Many books and, uh, have been written and written beautifully about those times and I, I love talking to Andrew about what was happening around. So, Andrew, first call to you. Hmm. Um, what happened between... 1861 Archer 1861 62 to 1918. What sort of
1: trophies were they? They talk of watches and war bonds. So what did they do? Look, uh, it was a wonderful idea that you had a Melbourne Cup that didn't actually have a trophy. The idea of the Melbourne Cup actually came from the English race, the Chester Cup. Chester's just near Liverpool, and and that's one of the oldest races in racing history. And I think the story with the Chester Cup was that there was a cup, but the winner never got it. You just got your name added to it. And in a lot of sports, you have these perpetual trophies where you don't get to take it home, or you might get to take it home for a year, but you have to give it back. Uh, So the idea of the Melbourne Cup when it was first run was it was just the name for the race, but they didn't get round to actually having a cup. Um, I think we... Uh, had a look a, a little while ago at, at whether or not Archer won any trophy at all. Uh, we've done quite a lot of research into this, and although it was claimed that there was a gold watch as a trophy, uh, if that's the case, it was not a, f- a formal official trophy. There was no trophy for that first Melbourne Cup. So the very first trophy that was given uh, was that little grey uh, pony Tory boy who won in 1865. And uh, he beat the the uh, the hot imported favourite Panic. Uh, Tory Boy's owner was given a beautiful, elaborate Victorian-era uh, silver trophy, uh, and it still survives. In fact, some years ago, it was uh, sold at auction and bought by the uh, the famous winemaker and racing enthusiast Wolf Blass. So he's got the Tory Boy trophy, and that's the oldest uh, Melbourne Cup trophy as it as it was. So over the rest of the 19th century, um, you know, racing would have its ups and downs and there'd be times where there was no trophy at all. They didn't get round to getting one. Other times there was one, um, but they'd often be pieces of, of ornate um, Victorian-era silverware, sometimes a tea set. Uh, there was one gold cup, which unfortunately has nearly all gone. There's one piece of it that's left, um, but it was a gold cup made in Australia by... Uh, a uh, Geelong-based goldsmith, uh, Edward Fisher, and he made the trophy for 1876. And I really love that story of 1876. It's the year the Philly Bryceius won not only the Derby and the Oaks, but also the Melbourne Cup in the one week as a three-year-old Philly. I don't think it'll happen these days. (laughs) And uh, uh, the chairman of the VRC at the time was a fellow called James Blackwood, and he was going on a trip to England and he decided he would generously present uh, a gold trophy to the VRC and they could give it to the winning owner, uh, who turned out to be James Wilson of St Albans. He was the owner-trainer of uh, of Briseus, And uh, it was apparently a very beautiful uh, trophy. We've, we've got uh, illustrations and pictures of it. Um, it was quite ornate, but it was just a cup um, and uh, many years later, that cup was definitely melted down, but one piece of it was kept which had the inscription on it. So we've got this long history of, of trophies um, up to the end of the, the, uh, the century, uh, and into the 20th century uh, started to be big silver bowls and things like that. Mm. Uh, it, it's really the First World War that uh, causes uh, that to stop because... Imported trophies um, were not really a great idea when, the, uh, when there were submarines and uh, shipping lanes were blocked. And the idea was to get uh, a local goldsmith to make a trophy. Uh, so that's really how it, where, where the idea of, of a, a, an Australian-made trophy, a golden trophy, comes from that First World War period. And
2: Dale I know you're a, you, you love the history of the the fabulous race and everything about it and I recall at the racing museum when we were in Fed Square we had on display the 1890 carbine trophy and you talk about ornate trophies I reckon that stands about a meter and a half high it is the most spectacular trophy I think I've ever seen
0: it um you beat me to it I was yeah. about didn't want to jump in on Andrew but uh, that was just the classic trophy. There was so many parts to it as well. but
2: um, So three tiers. Yeah, that's was it was like right. a big and, um, uh, wedding cake. It
0: was, it was amazing. And, and it, fortunately, um, um, just after I started with the BRC, the club was able to purchase that trophy at auction and gift, gifted it to the Racing Museum in perpetuity with the right for the club to actually have it back for display purposes yeah. at various times. But there are a number of trophies in display in the, the Racing Museum when it was at Caulfield. Uh, and it's, uh, and they just, uh, again, they, they weren't a cup. You had to understand it. It was that that's the way they did things in those days in terms of they like to bring things out from England, I suppose, to probably frank the mm. colonial ties to some extent as well. But... The silversmiths in England were sublime in terms of their their production of wonderful wonderful trophies, and so they um, they just they they were part of the history of the race back then. And of course, the transition, as Andrews described, to uh, ultimately getting to 1919 and and the Loving Cup, and and that has a, a wonderful history as well as we all know.
2: So that's uh, 1919. It's a sort of a year after the uh, the end of the First World War. Mm. So. Were there war bonds through 17? 14, 14, no, in fact,
1: the the war bond story is, relates to the Second World War. In the forties. Um, that's, that, that's right. So uh, let's go back to the to the First World War. There were there were three, what I'd call prototypes, before we got to the three handled loving cup. Uh, made each of those prototypes was made by. Uh, a goldsmith by the name of James Steeth, um, who is uh, a well-known uh, name, I think, in Australian uh, goldsmithing history, uh, he made the first bowl as a golden bowl in 1916, and that's the trophy that was won by Sassanoff, and um, Dale, I think you, you've you you've seen that trophy, haven't you? Was it's it on- in New Zealand? They yeah, it that's there. right. That's
0: right, it came out, we had it on display at the BRC. At at some stage or other, it might have been around the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the yeah. the running of the, the Melbourne Cup, if yep. I remember rightly. And it was XA it was a little bowl that just with no no legs to it. Probably. I remember oh, oh, yeah. actually I, I travelled
2: with the Melbourne Cup as an ambassador that uh, the year of Sassanoff. Uh, not not the year, but the mm. hundred years <laughs> old. Holding up okay. So we went to the property where where the owners of Sassanoff had set up their farm. And the trophy was there, it was like a fruit bowl. Mm-hmm. And we sat the year the Melbourne Cup it might have been uh, was it fifteen or sixteen, Andrew? Sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah. So we had the twenty sixteen Emirates Melbourne Cup alongside Sassanoff's Cup. And I've got a photo <laughs> of that and we held them both and they would have looked a bit like a sort of two ill assorted brothers. But yeah, I, one's I, a fruit bowl and one's a beautiful <laughs> loving cup.
1: I described the um the 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 1916 one is being a bit like the magic pudding because it's kind of got this big round bowl and these little legs. Yeah. It's ornate. It's um, but it, it it's quite low off the ground. And you were there with Johnny Letts, and I think he had the story that the uh, kids of the 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 grandsons of the of the owners of that trophy used to use it in their billy cart. That's right. <laughs> That's
2: exactly right. The tale, and these trophies. Um, so we got to Artilleryman in uh, well, 1919. Yeah. He, now, he was a cracking colt, wasn't he? He was oh, a beauty. He,
1: he, he, I think um, he officially won by six lengths, but the in photos look more like yeah. 10, wouldn't you yeah. yeah. say? Yeah. Uh,
2: and he ran a record. Yeah,
1: And he was having great
2: battles with uh, another horse who actually beat him, I think, in the derby. Uh, was it Rain's R- or Richmond May? R- Richmond, Richmond May yeah, was the name yeah. of that
1: horse. They had a great rivalry, and uh, but they um, they uh, they were uh, terrific colts. And and of course, in those days, it was quite common for the three-year-olds to run in the Derby and then go on to uh, to run in the Cup. So the trophy that that Artilleryman's owners uh, won, Samuel Horden and Alex Murphy, who was a Pastoralist in uh, Victoria. Uh, that's the first time that we had uh, the three handles um, as we know it today um, on a stem on a base. So, who the, came up with that uh, that plan that well, idea? Well, this uh, really comes up from Steve's workshop. Um, I understand from records that I've looked at that there was possibly an input. There was a, a fellow called Bill Morn who was the uh, basically the manager of William Drummond's and and company. Yeah. Now Drummond. No longer in business, but they used to be have a big jewellery store in Burke Street, and uh, they were the official suppliers of trophies to the VRC. So it was quite a complicated um, network because uh, VRC employed Drummonds to give them a cup. Drummonds engaged Steeth to make the mm-hmm. cup. Um, so there's a few people whose fingerprints are on it. Steeth made two cups before 1919 that were two handled. Uh, one of them still exists it 's up at uh at randwick uh, they they have that uh trophy the uh i think it 's the nineteen seventeen west courts trophy um but the three handles um it it suddenly seemed to be a just a a, a really clever design difficult to make uh the the trophy itself describing it 's about uh, a foot tall or thirty centimeters tall uh originally standing on a on a separately off a timber base. And uh, from that design, every trophy since that time has been uh, based on that. They're not exactly the same. There have been minor variations, sometimes quite interesting variations. But um, that three-handled trophy really, really worked. Um, It's... uh it was a complicated piece of of manufacture, um, and and I, I I might handball handball that pick that one back to to Dale and say yeah. look, you've you've talked to the goldsmiths over the years and they have different explanations mm. of how it's made, but mm. it's it's not just it doesn't come out of a mould, does it?
0: Well, you, you look at the cup and think it's just one piece, but yeah. it's actually about thirty individual pieces of of, of crafted gold that fit together to make the cup as we see it today, and of course the plinth underneath. So. As Andrew said, it's not just a mould and just producing this, this lovely shape, but it's, it's handcrafted, which is it's probably unique in terms of trophies these days. You don't you wouldn't get that anymore. Uh, and obviously the the gold content um, and the fact that it, um, it, it's varied over the years in terms of the quality of the gold, and Andrew can speak to that as well in terms of the history of the transition mm. from that, particularly mm. around from the farlapped cup on uh, and then the, the demise to
2: lesser value gold as i understand it
1: well too. sometimes it was nine carat gold um but it depended a bit on how flush the vrc was <laughs> dale would <don't> know this <laughs> and there where. were good
2: times and tough times <laughs> weren't there good years yeah. and bad years yeah.
1: years when you spend and years when you pull in the belt a little bit mm. and uh, so there was a period of time when the when the trophies were a bit smaller with but uh, quite a long period where they were made of nine carat gold um Interestingly enough, the way it's made now um, is slightly different in that the bowl is now spun, as against hand hammered uh, together. Yes, so yes. the old style was to take pieces of uh, flat piece of of gold, and the goldsmith would laboriously um, hammer it, soft gold, but around a, a kind of uh, uh, a boss or a model, um, but it would be hand hammered. These days, it it's they get the gold to be quite soft, and they're able to uh, to shape it a bit like glass blowing. It's a fascinating process, yeah, but yeah. it's labour intensive. So a lot of the value of the trophy is is as well as the gold is, is the making of it. Has it has
2: it always been created in the city in Melbourne?
1: Uh, it was for many many years um, until about. 2010, when it was uh, made up in Brisbane, um, a number of um, I think Hardy Brothers took over the making of it or the uh, the supply of it from Drummonds uh, from about 1980, but it was still made in Melbourne up till up till past 2000.
0: That was part of a sponsorship arrangement where the club received an offer from Hardys to take over the, the crafting of the trophy mm-hmm. and for that they, they provided the gold and the, the workmanship that went into it so it was quite a lucrative sponsorship yeah, at the time. Yeah, it's a good deal. Yeah. Of course, since, since now Drummonds have, have mm. got it back so it's, yeah. a, it's something that again, the, the, those that are actually involved in a trade uh, of, of gold trophies and, and gold in general mm. they want to be part of the cup's history as mm. well too which is fantastic. Yeah. Just
1: the, the maker of it now is her, as a company called ABC Bullion and they are making it in Sydney so um, but for many many years it was just three people responsible for actually making each trophy. James Steeth was the first, um, his son Morris took over the business and made the trophies up till 1970. Morris died uh, unexpectedly and there was a bit of a crisis but he had a young apprentice. Um, lucky rocker fortunato <laughs> rocker, and we we all know lucky he's a real character isn't he dale yeah.
0: <laughs> certainly is
1: and uh <laughs> he's he's still got his goldsmith shop in elgin street carlton um and uh he was i think I remember lucky saying you know well he was only an apprentice but he'd helped make the two or three before morris died and um so the hard words were put on do you think you can make one lucky uh, lucky and he said I'll have a go. So every trophy <laughs> from 1970 till 2000 was handmade by Lucky Rocker in Melbourne, um, oh. and then from uh, from 2000 it it went up to uh, went to Brisbane. To Brisbane. Um, yeah. So it's had a, had a few different. Um, uh, changes there but I think the Steeth design is it's still really the one that that's being followed We're
2: going to take a break, an intriguing story about the trophy, the, uh, the Melbourne Cup and the three-handed uh, loving cup as we call it But along the way, in latter years, uh, there are a couple of imposters and maybe some replicas started to appear on the surface. So after this break, we'll come back and we'll talk about one particular cup that was a little bit different to others, the 1980 Melbourne Cup won by Beldal Ball.
1: We're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race.
2: Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup. Now, let's talk about... Cup of 1980. Why was it different, and what's the story behind it, Andrew?
1: I think I'm writing a book about this, Brian. It is absolutely impossible to summarise this in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> You've got more than 30. <laughs> it's uh, it's a really complicated story, but let's let's go backwards through the time machine. The 1980 Melbourne Cup was won by Beldale ball owned by the Swettenham Stud Syndicate. Robert Sangster manager. Now, Robert Sangster was the most successful, wealthiest owner in the world at that stage. Um, and he was thrilled to bits to win the Melbourne Cup. I think it made him realise what, what a great race it was. It certainly changed his tune about the race. And uh, so he was presented with a beautiful trophy um, and uh, his wife, uh, then wife uh, Susan uh, Sangster, um, very celebrated quite well. T- took the um, the trophy back home after a couple of uh, of uh, dinners and, and back after dancing we- on the table at Maxim's
2: of, restaurant on Cup Night. Yeah. I mean, there was a bit of dancing, and maybe <laughs> the
1: uh, maybe the cup might have had the odd ding or two by the time everybody <laughs> had a drink out of it. Um, and she took it. Um, at that stage, they were living in the Isle of Man, um, which apparently is a good place to live if you yeah. have tax difficulties. And so uh, it went back there, and it was never engraved. It, all it ever had on it was Melbourne Cup 1980, and normally there's space there for the, uh, uh, for the winning horse's name to Bell be engraved. Yeah. Um, but it was never engraved, and in some ways that was a really good piece of luck because uh, it so happened... That And they had no idea, it was a well-kept secret, that the cup they were given was not a brand-new cup. Now, normally, mm. a new cup is made every year. Exactly. But this was recycling in action, you know. It was Day one of those
0: of- years where the VRC <laughs> struck financial <laughs> issues. And I think our good friend Rodney Johnson... Said we've got a trophy in the in the safe.
1: Why don't we use that? <laughs> wow! And so it was. Uh, yeah, recycling was 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 happening. So what it involved was yes, there was a trophy in the safe, and so Rod Johnson, who had been involved in acquiring this secondhand uh, trophy, took it to Lucky Rocker. And said, "Is it possible to get the engraving? It's got it's got Melbourne Cup 1953 written on it. Won by Wodella, owned by E. A. Underwood, who was the uh, the vice uh, chairman or deputy chairman of the VRC when he won it in 1953." And Lucky Rocker said, oh yes, it's gold, we can can, uh, get that engraving off, we'll just buff it off, you don't lose very much gold. And anyway, it's got three sides, you can turn it around and put the engraving on the second side. So the Beldale Ball Cup was Wodala's cup, won in 1953, uh, presented by the then uh, Governor-General, Sir William Slim. And uh, Ted Underwood died in 1961. He didn't have children. The trophy ended up going. Uh, the estate was. I think you got some some trophies at Caulfield as well or from when that The estate. racing
0: museum was set up in the late 70s and early. Uh, 80s, um, we had a number of the EA Underwood trophies on display right, in the yeah. Racing Museum. Yeah. When the Queen came out and I almost believed this trophy was on display she had Mooney Valley Cups and others that he mm. won at the time mm. and So, and EA e. Underwood was um, one of those wonderful people in Victorian racing he had the, the start up in, in north of Northern Victoria where we now have Godolphin and Darley it's their, they, they they acquired it some years ago and it's a magnificent part of the history of, of, of Victorian Absolutely. racing as well yeah.
1: So the uh, the the fifty three cup um, was was quite uh, a special cup, but there was a further twist to the tale, and that is something that really only came out many years later. Uh, that it's a very likely that that nineteen fifty three cup was itself a second hand cup. It had already this whole saga had happened one previous time. And the uh, reason that we eventually twigged to this is that that trophy is bigger than any of the trophies that are made in that period, bigger than every trophy that was made from the period 1931 onwards. Now, Brian, I'm going to ask your uh, trivial pursuit question. Who won the Melbourne Cup in the year before 1931? That's 1930. Who won the Melbourne Cup?
2: Oh, a pretty handy horse called Farlap. (laughs)
1: That's that's He he went okay. He wasn't a bad horse. (laughs) He went okay. We we had a a lovely talk about him the the other day. Now, um, what we've discovered is that the trophy that was made in 1953 had to have been made in 1930 or earlier. Now, I was telling you before that the first three Handle Cups made in 1919. So that gives a 12-year window of opportunity.
0: Do you know it's amazing, Brian? Before this investigation took place, there was a display of of Melbourne cups in the museum at, at, at the time, and that cup stood out as being different than the rest because it was so much bigger, and it just much great. It was so grand by comparison. Was it heavier? It was
1: a lot yes, heavier. It, yes, in yes. fact, it it um, weighed in at, at about uh, about a kilo, so just over a thousand um, uh, grams. Mm-hmm. And most of the Melbourne Cups from that time onwards were between eight to nine hundred grams, so it would have been ten percent to twelve percent larger than the other Melbourne Cups that were on display.
0: It made the others look small by comparison. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so
2: we're we effectively saying that in Wedella's cup was Farlap's cup from nineteen thirty. Look,
1: I do we think have ninety nine point forensic
2: evidence to say that it actually was? Or
1: yeah, um, S- Susan. Sangster, who uh, in later life became really fascinated by the story and was amazed by the story. And, of course, when I got to know her, she was Susan Renouf. She was Mm -hmm. living back in Australia. Uh, And she would say to me, Andrew, you are 100% sure that it's Farlap's Cup. And I would say to her, well... I'm 99%. I, I have been quoted as saying it's definitely that. But what we can say, it was definitely made in Farlap's era. And we did a process of elimination, a sort of detective, uh, a, a Poirot exercise. Because if it's not if it's not Farlap's, who who else could it be? And there's a very small uh, list of suspects. Because most of those Melbourne Cups from that period are accounted for, or are too small, uh, or there are slight design differences, and there are And Farlap's Cup is the most likely answer. Now, we've actually... Various things have been tried to uh, – it's, it's even gone to the synchrotron at Monash University <laughs> to see if we can find mm-hmm. hidden engravings because, of course, if Wodala's engraving was taken off, so was Farlap's. We know what Farlap's Cup looked like. We know that Harry Telford sold it when he was getting down on his luck in the uh, – Depression years? That, yeah. Well, it was – of course, he was he was doing all right in the Depression years because he had he'd won the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. It was really – later in the uh, in the late 1940s, early 50s, that he starts to get really down to his last uh, dollars. And we know from the family stories that he did sell his cup. We have a photographs of his cup on display in his own home, which is at the museum. So there's lots known about, about it. Um, it weighs the... It, we used to say it, it's got correct weight. It's exactly the right weight that it should be. Uh, so all the evidence points to the fact, and maybe it's a, a lovely mystery that we can never 100% solve, um, but the most likely answer is Bill Dale's Balls Cup was Wadala's Cup and it was somebody else's Melbourne Cup and almost certainly Farlaps.
2: Okay, now we we sort of fast forward onto the later 90s, around 1998, and a fellow turns up at a used car dealer's showroom uh, or lot up there on the Gold Coast and he turns up with what he believes is Farlaps Melbourne Cup and wants to trade it for a Holden, what happened here?
0: I've got. Have I got a cup for you?
2: <laughs> this is extraordinary. Failap for a Holden with the headlines in the Herald Sun That's in the right.
1: late nineties. What was this about? Well, in in a way, it's that story that got us on the trail of trying to work out what really happened to farlap's cup. So the whole of these stories are, are interrelated but in 1998 bob todd of bob todd's motors in port macquarie uh, lets the <laughs> bob press <Todd> <laughs> yeah. uh, and and uh, he he said look a fellow came in and said i've got a melbourne cup and uh, i'd like to get a uh, i think it was a holden Barina, according to yeah. shane templeton's article and uh, maybe a little bit of cash as well and it's very hard to prove that something isn't something you know it's one thing to 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 say I can prove that this is this is far Lapse cup, but look at head. 1930 Melbourne Cup engraved on it. It looked like a Melbourne Cup. It said won by Farlap. I think there was a little bit of a suspicion there that the words Farlap seemed to me to be joined together as one word and I think that's a bit of a giveaway. And it was also
0: solid gold too, wasn't it? It
1: was was an 18-carat gold cup. It was probably made by Lucky Rocker, probably made for uh, Drummonds as a spare. And um, somewhere along the line, somebody's got hold of it, had it engraved, and uh, that's how the story began. So, how how did you find,
2: or how did you check the authenticity of this one? Because you're you're a great investigator, obviously, Dale. You were a part of a part of when this this sort of (laughs) came to
0: surface. an investigative historian is the best way to describe it. <laughs> I'll tell you what Hallelujah I had, that we've got He him. was not going let to the, let the case go cold. Yeah.
1: No, I, I was very tenacious. But on the other hand, I also had a, your, one of your predecessors in, in office. You mentioned Rod Johnson, who's a great mate of both of us. And Rod was always suspicious right from the start that it couldn't have been Farlap's cup. And uh, Rod kept saying to me, passing me on little bits of information and telling me where we should go to uh, to ask the questions. And um, I think it was uh, Ro- Rod's enthusiasm that that really got me going, thinking this: there's something wrong with this. This is dodgy. So in the end, it 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 had to be proved. We eventually found James steeth 's workbooks, which had the weight. Of the Melbourne Cup written in it at the time it was made and then we found the photograph Telford's photograph at the Melbourne Museum we were able to blow that up to look at the proper inscription so the the punchline of all of this Brian is that uh, the fake photo was uh, uh, it was beaten on the weights it wasn't correct weight and it was beaten in a photo finish Amazing Dale, amazing. Oh, how just to be this part, forensic information. To be part of that
0: was just um, every I' go home and think about. It. Again, when we're trying to track down the Farlap Cup, just willing it to, to be true. To willing it to be <coughs> yeah, Farlap Cup them, yeah. because the the history that the fact that the, 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 the folklore that had been melted down because of Telford had fallen a hard time, and it would have been so sad. Well, it was so sad mm. to think that was the case, but. Again, I I must admit I was a, a, certainly a willing uh, soldier in this this exercise, <laughs> and willing Andrew to do the work to come up with the yeah. the best answer possible. And I
1: think that is the best answer possible. It's uh, it, it's almost certainly Lapse Cup, and uh, and so it survives and lives again, and has had three lives. So. Uh, quite amazing. In conclusion, as we
2: wrap up this uh, part of the uh, program, uh, we now have and celebrate this beautiful trophy for the. 2019 Melbourne Cup, sponsored, of course, by Lexus. It's valued at just over $200,000.
1: Yes, it is now, and that's partly because after this discovery was made and we came up to the 150th Melbourne Cup, and there was a bit of debate about could, should we have a special cup for that year. Mm. So what was the decision then, Dale? Basically,
0: uh, well, we thought that Farlap's Cup was something special. Mm. With All the work we'd done in terms of identifying what it looked like and the weight in the goal, the... the 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 committee decided that well that's probably the best that was the probably the the ultimate design for the melbourne cup mm. 1930 or thereabouts yeah. it had grown in size from 1919 it had got to 1930 to 1929 and 1930 and then after that it was downsized because of a finan- for financial reasons and then when even through the war where the club wasn't fl- that flush with money even through the 60s and 70s and 80s the VRC wasn't as flush as perhaps it is now so it it was it reached its peak in terms of the design of the trophy that was my my thoughts and Mm -hmm. I think the board took that view and and we're so fortunate to have it back to being what, what is the, probably the, the ultimate in design for this yeah. wonderful, wonderful travel. Incredible.
1: It, it travels around. Um, it, it now has more gold than, than ever before. It's uh, a, a solid piece. It, it gets a lot of love now. In the old days, it just used to sit in Drummond's window, but it gets a lot of love today. Yeah. The, the
2: stories, the, the myth, the urban myth around... This great race just, just grows as years go by and you, you probably never have enough time to talk about the Melbourne Cup. And, and as we focused in on this trophy again and the stories behind the trophy, please stay with us because we want to talk about the
1: the legendary uh, Carbine. We're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race.
2: Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup, 1890 horse and a great horse called carbine carried 65.77 kilos 10 stone 5 in the old written by bob Ramage, he started four to one favorite and he created a record a record not just over the distance of 328 and three quarters for the the two miles but he he was in a field of 39 and he was the idol of racing andrew back then 1890 what was happening in melbourne
1: how were we placed it's interesting connection with farlap winning in 1930 because you've got that start of the depression and in 1890 things were starting to go bad in melbourne there'd been a huge boom there'd been the gold rushes of course in the in the 50s uh, melbourne grew at an extraordinary rate and in the 1880s there was a great the land boom of the 1880s and money seemed to be no object the vrc put up a huge prize for the melbourne cup uh, and uh, they had the greatest horse that had ever um, raced on in on australian turf uh, to win that win that event so i would say 1890 was was on the cusp there were certainly lots of signs that things were going bad and i think that people a bit like with farlap in 1930 they were looking uh, for a hero to win the melbourne cup and as you you've summarized there brian the the extraordinary thing a field of 39 i mean we Uh, Used to think thirty horses back in nineteen sixty was too many. It's come down to twenty four. It's the biggest field that we have in Australian racing. And the
0: second horse carried twenty four kilos less than (laughs) than the carbine carried in the Melbourne Cup.
2: Twenty four kilos. And he beat him by nearly three lengths. (laughs)
0: That's right. In in race record time.
2: And, And try and get your head around this: carbine on four occasions ran twice on the same day and one. And he'd go from a mile to two miles. And he did it in Sydney and Melbourne. That's right. Yeah. In Sydney, he won the cup in record time.
0: That's right. Yeah. He was just like Brian for me. Um, that was probably the start of my involvement in racing. I became interested in the story of Carbine. So it's it's a passion for me, the history of this this wonderful, wonderful horse. Not only his racing history, but more particularly the breeding history associated with that magnificent horse Black Caviar. When she was racing, I did some work on it. She's had 56 strains of Carbine in her pedigree. Is that right? Extraordinary number. So he's just had a, an unbelievable influence on the world breeding industry. Breeding is my my main interest in racing, apart from obviously the, the, the feature races and so forth. But uh, I, I just to delve into his pedigree and what happened afterwards is something I I could I could spend hours on. And uh, <laughs> I know <laughs> a bit like Rick Gamerson, who bred Black Caviar. He's that sort of person yeah. as well. He loves his pedigrees.
1: And, and
2: you look at him. He was buying muskets so he's beautifully named, Carbine. He came from New Zealand, New Zealand bred. He had five starts in New Zealand and won them all at two. He came to Australia for his three-year-old season. First start in the derby
0: and run second.
2: First start (laughs) in the derby and never
1: went home, of course. No, No, he was too good. (laughs) Uh, And in that Derby, of course, it was a a piece of uh, what would you call a clever, clever riding that probably saw the defeat of Carbine Mm. in the Derby. Should have won the Derby. I I think I wasn't there, Dale, but apparently my grandfather was. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, He told me years later. He said I saw Carbine win win the Cup. Then there was a pause, and he said, "Actually, I didn't see anything. I was eleven, but I was there." (laughs) And uh, so he. As an example, you know, an 11-year-old kid had to go to Flemington to try and be there to to be part of that. It, um So it, that mm, was part of the magic. It's wonderful a, to have that, Link. Yeah. Yeah,
0: even a story of his sire, our musket, he was brought out to New Zealand to sire coach horses. He was a thoroughbred. But Carriage he, and coach he He, horses, his, yeah. um, he, he was well-performed, but not exceedingly well-performed. So he was... A well, very well-bred thoroughbred, but, uh, and they, that's what his purpose was. And they just happened to put a, a mare called Mersey to him, imported mare, and uh, out came Carbine. And so
2: tell us about, uh, Andrew, to you, uh,
1: the great trainer Walter Higginbotham. Mm. Well, Higginbotham was uh, not exactly the Bart Cummings of his he day, was. but he was, you he, reckon. He was, he reckon was day, back well, in those days. Yeah. He was I the think Bart he was, Cummings. Mm. He, he was the one that, when... Um, the, uh, let's go back one step The guy who owned um, Carbine in New Zealand was Dan O'Brien Who had been a jockey in Australia And his story is amazing There's a really couple of really good books about Dan O'Brien and his story But his idea was to bring Carbine to Australia Run him in the Derby and sell him And that's exactly what he did um, And he was bought by... Uh, a man who, at that stage, was very wealthy, Donald Wallace, who subsequently lost most of his wealth in the uh, in the mining and collapse. And was forced to sell
0: Carbine later on. He was, and
1: mm. um, but he had enormous success with Carbine as a as a racehorse, and um, so I think that uh, the the idea of, of bringing Carbine over here was was to show him off to sell him at a profit. And I think Dan O'Brien thought he'd done pretty well selling him for three thousand guineas, which was a lot of money at the time. He was eventually sold, and I think really, Dale, his story as a sire, although he did sire really good winners here in Australia, he was sold to England, and it's late in his career that he really starts to make a mark as a stallion.
0: Well, in, he stood at about two or three seasons. Actually, it's an Auburn stud, as Andrew mentioned before, down in, near Geelong. Yeah, at Geelong, yes. And um, two or three seasons, but then uh, the owner uh, was unhard hard times. So um, sold him to Duke of Portland, who at that time in England at Welbeck Abbey had then the world's greatest day in Saint Simon standing, and and Saint Simon was getting older and older and older in years, and uh, and the Duke was looking for an outcross of, of to send all the Saint Simon mares to, and so um, he he managed to purchase a horse. I, and the fanfare of Farlap going overseas it was even bigger for Carbine when he was when he left to go to on the boat to go to england i 've got photographs of, oh, yeah. uh, of, of him on display getting on the boat and and the outpouring and the crowds when he was leaving lining the streets of Melbourne to say yeah. goodbye to me oh, yeah. was just Fascinating, but of course, as Andrew mentioned, when he got to England, he had a, a slower start. A lot of people didn't like the look of the horse because he had a, a pin, what they called a pin head, and very narrowing of the down to his nostrils, and mm-hmm. and there was some disparaging remarks about his his appearance when he arrived mm-hmm. in England mm-hmm. at the time. But little did he know he'd go on and side two English Derby winners. And that he was the the great-grandsire of probably the the world's greatest stagion, being Nyarko. Uh, Frederick Tessio cottoned on to the carbine blood. And through Nyarko, you've got the Danzig, Danehill, Northern Dancer, all of that blood, which predominates today uh it's just an unbelievably fascinating story how this one stadium from australia originally from new zealand but we claim Mm. he's an australian Mm. has just influenced world bloodlines unbelievably
2: as we go back to his race record he got beaten by bravo he carried 10 stone in the 1889 melbourne cup and bravo beat him with i think eight stone four but he came to win that that cup in in 1890 and through his career, we note that he, he, he carried a cracked heel. So he was sort of, he was high maintenance to, mm. to get him to, first of all, to run out to over those journeys. Can you imagine the types of tracks he'd have to run on?
0: Oh, they would they wouldn't be plough paddocks, but mm-hmm. would uh, be, far off be off really it. long grass and they, they wouldn't be watered no. in terms of being kind No of mowers, horse, <laughs> horses, horse's hooves. He had some other quirky um, things of nature as well. He didn't like rain.
1: And, and so he wasn't a wet tracker and um
0: hickenbotham had an umbrella and he would sometimes wor- walk with the umbrella above carbine's ears because he knew the horse didn't like getting his ears wet and and, uh, and that was on display at the racing museum at Caulfield yes. in, yeah. in, in the in the time that i was there it just he had quirks that sort of uh, that uh, well being such a good horse they, they obliged his quirks
1: and i think you know think of the way Maccabi Diva or Gunsin would play to the audience mm. once they realise their uh, their you know Winks is aware of what the audience what the crowds do and so those horses know and so Carbine would play up to the crowd wouldn't he Dale?
0: That's that's they're the stories of the yeah. day. Old Jack, as they used to call
1: him. Old Jack, forty three
2: yeah. starts, thirty three wins, and uh, the story goes that on Cup Night, um, Higginbotham. Uh, stayed outside the horse's stall, didn't go to the festivities because it was a great celebration in Melbourne that particular night, so they say, uh, in 1890. The champion had set a weight-carrying record, had beaten 38 opponents, and the crowd went wild. There was only around 80,000 because times were tough in Melbourne, but the celebration just went on and on and on as this horse glided down the straight and won the Melbourne Cup in Mm. stunning fashion. And those festivities would have continued on. They go by horse and carriage or by riverboat, go back to Melbourne and celebrate the Melbourne Cup, the win of this great horse.
1: Yeah, and it's, uh, it is is a story that's been well authenticated that Walter Higginbotham at the end of Cup Day Went back to Carbine stall because um, there had been, as you say, problems with the horse's hoof. It was always a bit touch and go as to whether he was going to be fit to run in the race. And uh, they were really looking after the hoof. And uh, I like the idea of Higginbotham sort of sitting there with with maybe a a glass of champagne and uh, sitting there next to Carbine and just having a quiet moment together at the end of the Melbourne Cup day. Uh, But he he was the hero. Um, A lot of people said look, you're turning a horse into a god, you know. There were a few, a few Methodists out there who were a bit unhappy with the uh, the treatment that Carbine was getting. But, uh, you know, Australians love their horses and particularly those, those ones that uh, stand out above the others.
0: Well, at the tail end of his career, I think his last 18 starts, he won 17 races. And as you said, Brian, a number of them, two on the one day. So, mm. And at the time, with the, there was the first Great Depression, 1890. Mm. And, um, then people were hard up on on times. And same with Farlap, they yeah. people were able to to prep put bread on. They butter, wanted beer. Bread on the table, the with the, some of the wins that have on on Carbine.
1: And we were also looking at just in that breeding side of it. Um, it's probably been a few years ago now. I remember you, Dale, pointing out to me that every horse that was running in the Melbourne Cup of that particular year had Carbine in the pedigree. And it's been true of every year since then. You can go through the pedigrees and there's Carbine as an ancestor of, of all the horses running in the Melbourne Cup and it would probably be the same this year.
0: Oh, I have no doubt whatsoever mm. about that, Andrew. You'd mind you, go back. Probably ten generations or thereabout, mm. but he's still there <laughs> as a foundation stone to uh, the, the very the, the nature of the thoroughbred we have today. the the animal that um, the, the animal that delivers so well to the, the racing industry and the performances of the horses. And, and to, there's,
1: to there's also uh, he had three direct generations of uh, who won the english derby because spearmint won the won the derby and then a the son of spearmint won the derby Spion
0: cop, speon
1: cop uh, mm. and then there was a third generation so uh, he made he made his present felt in the english and then of course in the uh, american international breeding scene When he
2: uh, won the uh, Sydney Cup, um, he was a three-year-old. He carried 5.5 kilos overweight for age. He beat Melos and Abercorn in record time. That was 1889. uh, And he came back to win the Sydney Cup again at 1890. But, of course, Abercorn itself was was an outstanding horse of that period.
1: He's in the Australian Racing Hall of Fame now, Brian. So he was no mean horse. And I think... um the the uh, connections of Abercorn up in Sydney, the Honourable James White owned Abercorn, and uh, he was a very successful racing owner. Uh, in another, in a different year, it would have been Abercorn, would have been the hero of the day. Um, but uh, Farlap put him a little bit in the shade.
2: And the, the jockeys who shared the spoils aboard uh, the Great Horse Carbine were Jack O'Brien and Bob Remich. Um,
1: and it changed from time to time? It was mainly um, O'Brien <laughs> and... Um, it wasn't Jack. It was uh, was it? Um, I'm having a mental block there. But Ramage um, was a uh, had a very good connection with with the horse, and um, he was he was a top jockey of his day.
2: Uh, Dale, when you look at his last performance, uh, it was in uh, April the fourth of April, eighteen ninety one. So he won the Melbourne Cup. Uh, came back in the autumn, won the, uh, on the 26th of February, won the 1891 Essendon Stakes and the Champion Stakes in early March, the all Age Stakes at Flemington on the 7th of March. Then he uh, had the campaign where he, he eventually moved to Sydney, he got beaten in the All-Aged up there in, in uh, early April of 1891, but then won the Cumberland uh, Stakes over two miles. And then two days later, his final win was in the AJC Plate over three miles, it took six minutes and 27 seconds, <laughs> so that's the last time we saw him, the 4th of April
0: 1891. Yes, he had uh, the cracked hoof heel actually caught up with him, and uh, they had no choice but to retire him, as I understand it, and as I said, then after he retired he went down to St Albans, stud uh, back as master longway way, and uh, yeah, and I think uh, he, he stood at a, then at a, a very significant service fee for, for mm-hmm. thoroughbreds in Australia at the time, and he was and as Andrew mentioned, he did have some quite a bit of success in Australia. He's, he's probably, his probably best son was a horse called Wallace, who won a Victoria Derby and AJC Derby and other races. But Wallace actually was a, a champion sire in Australia, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, Wallace's a number uh, of times as well.
1: I'm pretty sure Wallace is buried at Bundura. At the uh, look all around Australia, you can find little bits of our racing mm. history. Um, uh, Wallace was stood at the at the Bandura Stud um, by J V Smith. And is that was, at the
2: Mill Park area? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. There's so some stables is a, an
1: old barn there, isn't it? You've there? got Septimus Miller's old Mill Park Stud, and just be- but before you get to that, just past Latrobe University, it's now uh, it's a um, part of the uh, local council has an art museum there, and uh, in that area there you'll find Wallace. Uh, that's where he stood, and also another famous Melbourne Cup horses buried not far away from there, and that was the great. King, the, oh, yes. uh, the Red cadeau of his day, the horse who nearly won the Melbourne Cup four or five times. Wonderful horse. Uh, so uh, Dale, you,
2: you talk about the trace of, uh, of bloodlines back through the great black caviar. What about the horses that are coming out, uh, the imported horses that are coming out from Europe mm. particularly? Can we trace uh, carbine back through? Absolutely. Through the,
0: like yeah? all the um, Sadler's Wells, Galileo. The, the northern dance the sire line Nyarko going back to his great dam being by Spearmint the son of Carbine the derby yeah. winner so that sire line in particular but uh, it just uh, the polarisation of, of, of breeding in terms of staggings is. Uh, it's sort of in, it's it's ensuring that carbine is in every every pedigree that we see in the Melbourne Cup every year.
2: It's akin to Star Kingdom through the uh, the Golden Slipper, isn't yes, it? Yes, so but, many more ways, but even more so,
0: more so worldwide. Star mm. Kingdom had okay. a, a huge influence in Australia from the mid 1950s through to probably the, the 1990s. Then it's it's waned. There's still a couple of Star Kingdom stallions around at the moment, uh, but not many of them. So, uh, yeah, but it, when carbine sire died out in. The, the nineteen fifties or the sixties I think it was Felstead. he had a the karaoke, a karaoke yeah. I think was one of the um, horses that won a decent race in Sydney that's right and, and uh, yeah so uh,
2: so where does Carbine sit we we talk of uh, the great Red Terror Farlap but he, hmm. he certainly sits up alongside well Farlap, I think Farlap the, the
0: the because of the, the depression and going overseas and winning and and he probably stands supreme as number one and. And even today, as you know, the, the the museum in Melbourne, without Farlap, they would probably get half the crowds go through that exactly. museum. Yeah. And so that it perpetuates the story of Farlap and the, the young children that go to that museum and see this, this wonderful horse, the height of a horse, and they hear about his story. We've had the film Farlap, of course. But Carbine, really, in, in terms of his racing career, was every bit as good as Farlap in, in his era. and, and
1: And of course, his immortality continues through the The through that breeding line. Absolutely, and And of course, uh, the the skeleton. You can't go and see his skeleton. It's not quite the same as seeing the stuffed hide. We had that at the museum where the skeleton would move too. So it's still on display at the uh, at the National Sporting Museum at the MCG. Mm -hmm. And in fact, just it's a good reminder of people that there's a lot of the material that Dale was talking about that's on display at the National Sporting Museum, and you can see Carbine's skeleton. Mm -hmm.
2: And there were bits of carbine sort of spread everywhere because we had... I was had- going
0: to get to that. Waste not, want not. Oh. And I think uh, on the VRC committee table when I first got <laughs> there his in hoof? 2000, was his hoof. <laughs> oh, and it had these little, little bullets in front of it. And in, in the inkwell, they used to hide the key to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so after the committee meeting, they'd go to the carbine <laughs> the <calf> hoof. <laughs> in New Zealand, the Auckland Racing Club chairman's chair was made out of his hide. Oh. They made... Uh, tobacco pouches and distributed them around oh. the countryside and even his head was given to the his stuffed head uh, yeah. was given to the Auckland Racing Club and i never forget when I was, had the, the Melbourne Cup on tour one year, we, we visited Auckland and in the safe there was this head <laughs> on the floor God of the safe uh, looking up at me. <laughs> they did things differently. I, I, just, oh, I felt oh, so sad. But, oh. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's buried at Welbeck Abbey and um, actually except years his ago, head. <laughs> have you have you
2: been back to see the headstone? Have you, have you no, I haven't, been? but I know someone who actually yeah, grew yeah. up there, and oh, I, I caught gee. up
0: with him some years ago, and and we put two and two together. He grew up on the stud property, and was what, telling what
2: me age was the horse when he when he passed? Twenty seven, twenty eight years of age. Oh, he had a really innings. good life, mm. Um, mm.
0: and he looked really healthy, and he was a, just a beautiful looking thoroughbred. The, the yeah. body of the horse, you just uh, was just you fall in love with him as a as a thoroughbred. I person, think Dale as, has. I have, yes. <laughs> well,
2: you know, we have uh, Farlap standing outside the entrance at uh, Flemington. We have the great Maccabi diva down on the lawn. We have Bart. We have Roy. And I know the the wonderful writer, Les Carline, who passed away uh, earlier this year, he was hell-bent on getting a statue to Flemington of the great Carbine. That's, that's something we've got to do. I
0: think um, your friend and mine, Amanda, Amanda Elliott, is a yeah. good one to take up that cause yeah. because she will acknowledge the history of of the VRC and the Melbourne Cup and how Carbine plays so much a part of it. We do have a stall at Flemington, yes, uh, which uh, is near the bird the bird cage area, so people on race day can actually wander in there and have a look. A lot of photographs on the walls, so to be able to to make sure that survived uh, for, after so many years, yeah. I think is a, is a wonderful thing. But yeah. I agree with you. It's entirely appropriate that there is a statue of Carbine. We'll work on that.
2: We'll work on that, gents. Great to have your company uh, on this edition of uh, the history of the Melbourne Cup. We do ten editions. This is edition number six, so we've got a couple of weeks to go. But we've got to come back because there are so many untold stories, Uh, the romance of this race, just about the trophy, about the people. There's
1: still so much to talk about. Yeah, we haven't even got to the uh, recent, recent times, have we, Brian? A I'm few more interested in the old times, actually. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> right. It's, it's such a rich
2: story. It mm. goes back so many years. Yeah, and what's going to happen this year? Who knows? We yeah. can't predict that. Can Lloyd Williams win it for the seventh time? Extraordinary! Hard,
0: we know that. <laughs> well, he's bringing
2: Frankie out to ride Master <laughs> of Reality, and my pocket saying, I hope he can win. Jens, <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for your time today.
0: Absolute pleasure, pleasure, Brian.
2: Pleasure, Brian and the his- thank the, you. The history of the Melbourne Cup, intriguing stories. Look forward to your company again next week.